Hello and welcome back to the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club. In this episode, we will begin our coverage of Heinlein's uh, works from 1952, um, specifically The Rolling Stones and The Year of the Jackpot. Only two works, one novel and one short story, um, and that will that will be all for, for this year. Uh, so it'll be three episodes because it will take a couple episodes to look at um, The Rolling Stones. So the Rolling Stones is, I think, the sixth of the juveniles. So we're halfway through, depending on how you count them. If you include Podcane of Mars and Starship Troopers, we're not quite there, but um, close enough. Uh, the official juvenile list is is halfway through with this this book. Um, and as I predicted last time, I I was betting they wouldn't keep getting better. And 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 I think I could make that claim pretty confidently because I I had read this before, um, and. And it didn't, in my memory, it wasn't as good as some of the other stuff I've, I've read recently by him. And I, and I think that holds up. I, I think this novel is really interesting and has a particular audience and is kind of unique in among the juveniles so far um, in that it doesn't have any real violence. Um, and it's probably more than any other focused on science. Um, you know, science is in the backdrop of a lot of these. We have these young uh, men, uh, protagonists who are always fairly talented, fairly skilled, um, and of course that includes skill in science of various types. And we saw like in Farmer in the Sky, you know, this idea that ecology was like a lesser science to hard science. We, we know that this is kind of Heinlein's perspective on it. And I think in no book that we've read up to this point do we see such an intense focus on the importance of physics. I mean, literally, like the, the idea of a slide rule comes up numerous times in this book uh, as like the essential tool for space travel. Um, the book overall is kind of uh, bizarre, though. It, it's it's just like kind of like a family vacation uh, in space with these uh, all these all these talented people. Everyone is like super skilled. Um, not the baby, but I'm sure the baby will grow up to be smart. And it's, you know, and and they have to kind of like figure out how to manage the ship on their own, right? I, I think in that sense, it is kind of fantastical. But I, I think Heinlein maybe wants to believe that that space travel will be routine and something that can just sort of be accomplished the same way someone taking a, a trip to the Grand Canyon uh, is possible. Now, of course, we're told again and again, it's a lot more complicated than just driving a car, but it's still doable within their skill set and their education set of, of our characters. Another thing I really like about this this book is that we get kind of a, a more well-drawn-out family. The boys are interchangeable, Castor and Pollux. They are uh, obviously a pretty cliche name for twins, kind of annoying actually, if you think about it, but um, it's, they are they're just the they're just the Heinlein juvenile heroes. They're in, they're just two of them now, and I, I I doubt many readers could 
if put uh, like on Jeopardy, you could tell you the difference between Castor and Pollux. Uh, which one was born first? Maybe they could have some trivia like that, but their characters kind of merge. One is more interested in history, and one's more interested into in in math, and they kind of uh, fake it. <laughs> like there's a whole subplot about how they use their them being twins to kind of get out of taking the class they didn't want to take, and one of them's not as good as in math because of that. So that, that's kind of fun, and that's a fun use of the twins. But uh, beyond that, not much. I mean, we have seen pairs of boys before, like like our hero and a friend. We've seen that, I think, pretty much in every juvenile to some degree. But it's, you know, they're just the heroes uh, of the story. But the rest of the family is more well drawn out, actually. Um, so we have three generations of the stones. Um, we got Hazel Stones, who's an engineer by training and one of the early generation people on the moon. And I know uh, Highline mentions Hazel Stone in other works, so she's a reoccurring character. I don't think this makes it part of the future history, so I don't think it's like part of the moon is a harsh mistress, but it is, but maybe it is. I mean, we, we, we get the sense of this powerful woman, which of course is a, on, the, on the moon, which is of course the theme of that book um, but she's part of the founding generation so it's basically like if your, gra your grandmother was uh, was Thomas Jefferson or something yeah she's even got like a pension for her service in the in the revolution and and I think that's it's kind of implied that this is after the events of the moon is a harsh mistress I guess if you want to just put this in the same world I don't know it's been a while since I read it I don't know if she's mentioned in that book maybe she is in which case it's just uh, part of that future history Whatever. I, as I said before, I don't think the future history is something we should sweat too much. It's not really a well-drawn-out world. I, I think the best we get is the, the, the early, the, the post-World War II short stories, the Green Hills River stories is probably the best expression of that future history vision because it's, it's very united and it's got a, some common themes. But anyways, Hazel is the star of this show. Um, literally, she's like writing a show. Uh, in it. Even though Roger, her son, is the main writer of this, uh, like a television serial, essentially, an adventure serial. Um, Hazel kind of takes over at the end and showing just another talent she has. So she's financially sophisticated. She's an engineer. She's uh, super, super competent in every way. She's long lived. But on the moon, we're told because of the low gravity, people can live for who knows how long. It's not really been proven yet. People just sort of keep going on. Um, really powerful, funny. She's like the funny character in the in the story. There's a little bit of humor throughout with the others, but everyone, you know, Hazel is the one who actually tells jokes that are funny, even to the to the reader today. And she's just got a wonderful attitude, and she's very headstrong, and she she stands by her moral judgments. Excellent character, um, one of Heinlein's best, actually. Um, at least as far as the juvenile is concerned, because the characters here are so, you know, forgettable. You know, speaking on this, before I go to the other family members, I'm, I'm thinking you're not supposed to read these novels like back to back. It, it, you're supposed to read them one a year, right? That's when they came out. It, it's kind of like, uh, you know, like Elmore Leonard or, or even someone like Stephen King. I, I did read a, I think it's a complete Stephen King read through it is not, don't get you don't get this feeling because his characters are so well drawn but these 
aren't, I think we're not intended to be read like back to back, you know, over the course of, of a year and a half reading all of his work. You know, you read them when they come out and it's once a year and you've read many things in between. So it, you kind of return to Heinlein and that, that the repetitiveness of the themes and the characters is less noticeable then. And, and I think this is the case with a lot of like the fiction writers with a lot of output, you know, where maybe they have a couple books a year or, or one book a year. Um, but they're kind of pulpy. I, I think they're not it's not intended to be read that way. Um, so I, I think that's if I, if I sound bored sometimes with this series, which, which I'm really not, but if I feel frustrated with this, I, I think that's not really Heinlein's fault because I don't think he ex would have suggested you, you, you stack up all those books while you're covering from a, 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 you know, an injury and just read them all, um, back to back. Anyways, back to the characters. So Hazel, star of the show, easily. Then we have Roger Stone, who's uh, the father of the patriarch. He's an engineer, but he basically makes his living now uh, writing these television serials for Earth. And that's a really cool subplot where he wants to get out of it. But it's such good money and it's supporting the family. Um, and he's but he's kind of bored with the characters. Right. I don't know. Is this Heinlein saying when he needs to get beyond the juveniles? That could be. Perhaps, but you know, we. This actually comes up where Hazel starts writing them, and she starts killing off characters. And Roger Stone's like, "We well, can't do that. It's the serial. You always have to have the hero live." And she's like, "No, no, we're going to end it," which is kind of a cool criticism of the whole serialized format, right? Where or the episodic format, I guess, like a serialized television, the way we think of it now, where. You have a whole story told over over 10 episodes or 12 episodes. You know, they're, you know, you expect major characters to, to die or be replaced or, or things like that. That's just because you're telling a, a novel for television almost. But I'm thinking more like the episodic television, like a sitcom or, or Gunsmoke or, or a series like that where, you know, every episode you have to kind of reset and be back to normal. Um, you might have a cliffhanger, but after the cliffhanger's resolved, you're back to normal to some degree. Um, but anyways, that's Roger's character. He's, of course, also super competent, although he's a little humble. He often makes jokes about being the dumbest person in the family. But he still merges as, as the patriarch and the big decision maker, um, although every character gets their moment to shine I f for the most part. Um, so, yeah, the more I talk about it, the more I, I kind of there's a lot to like about the one stone. Um, not as good, I still think, as Between Planets, but, um, but, but nice. This, this definitely has an audience. I, I could see this being a more accessible Heinlein juvenile than some of the others. Good one to recommend as the first one, perhaps, to get a feel of what Heinlein's like, especially the focus on science. Anyways, Roger's wife, Edith, is a medical doctor. And that is a major plot point. She kind of is not a prominent character early in the story. Um, and the gender roles are a little crudely drawn and conventional. Uh, I, I mean, except Hazel's not, but with the Edith and Roger relationship. And I think he's so close here. Like, and, and I think he gets there by the time he writes The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. But The Moon should have a very, very different whole philosophy of gender. And he's not quite ready to kind of 
go that far yet. Um, but he's he's getting there, I think, with uh, Edith being independent and competent and able to make decisions on her own without Roger's advice. But at times, you, you see the conventional gender roles, uh, like her as the nurturer. She's being the doctor, so she's got the nurturing role, right? Maybe it would have been more interesting to make Roger the doctor and Edith the engineer, who's always, like, educating the, the, the boys and, you know, fixing the ship or, or making the flight plans or things like that. Uh, flight plans, oh my God, so many in this, this story. So much emphasis on just like how you get the ship to orbit of Mars from the moon and things like that. Anyways, uh, so we got cast. Oh, so the, 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 son, the children in order is Mead, Castor, and Pollux, whichever one was born first. There's a few minutes apart. And then, then Butch or Lowell, who is the baby. Um, and what, like, like we had with, uh, I guess it wasn't a baby in Farmer in the Sky, but we had a younger sibling who, who gets sick. And that's like, oh, do we have to like revamp our plans because of a sick child? This has been done before. So again, if you, the la- if you had written Farmer in the Sky two years ago, like you should have before reading up this, maybe you f- forget that or don't notice it or, or just take it. But when you've read it just a couple of weeks ago, yeah, you remember you did this before, Heinlein, where, where a sick sibling forces people to make tough decisions about the plans. Mead, uh, the oldest daughter, um, the oldest kid old, or old, and a daughter. Um, I might have more to say about her later. She's just sort of there uh, in the first part of the book. She does have her own opinions, though. So um, I wish she was a little bit more well drawn out. And, and I think she does get her moment to shine, too. Later in the story, uh, Castor and Pollux instigate the whole plot because they're the ones who want to, uh, they, they basically want to start a business from the moon shipping. They, they have like their trust fund and they want to unlock their trust fund, their bit of the inheritance to build, a, to buy a ship and use it to ferry goods. Um, Roger's against this until he sort of gets talked into it by by Hazel, really, to say like, no, let's let's just make this a family journey right let's buy a bigger ship let's uh travel around and and maybe we'll help pay for it with with shipping but that's not going to be our priority our priority is going to be a family of individualists working together and that's the theme here in addition to like you better study your science the theme here is really kind of nice it's how it's it's almost anarchic in a way right like how do you have order how do you have um like an organization that can accomplish something when everyone is hyper-individualized. Um, and Rogers says this explicitly at a few points, that we're um, lunatics, loonies? Lunatics is, I think, what Philip Dix calls them in, in Time Out of Joint. I keep making that mistake. But the I think there, there might be loonies here. They are more individualists than Earth or Mars, which is very bureaucratic, the moon has kind of got a special culture because of its environment. Um, but these guys are all individualists, but they have to work together. And they're working sometimes at cross purposes and doing their own thing. But together, right, they're, they're the Rolling Stones. The ship's called the Rolling Stone. They are, they're able to achieve their goals, which is ultimately to go to the frontier, which is the asteroids, and be engaged in trade between Mars and the asteroids. And, you know, the future is unwritten. I think that's common with all these juveniles. There, there, there's, 
there's a potential sequel that he never writes. Like that, that future is unwritten. Um, but I think that's great thematically for the juveniles. Is like, of course, the young man reading this, or the boy reading this, you know, finishes and can put him empathize with the characters and say, yes, my future is also unwritten, and and I'm going to venture out in some place. Who knows where the future will be? You don't want to write that out. You don't want to say, Castor and Pollux got married to so and so and and lived happily ever after on Mars or something. That's wouldn't be as interesting thematic. It wouldn't fit the theme of of an open-ended narrative. Um, that's our kids. Then we have Lowell. Lowell is just the baby who, who, who's there to get sick and, and to be a, a plot point and whatever. Not too much to say about him. He cries. He he whines. He, he gets sick. He gets allergies. Um, things like that. Um, so, anyways, um, yeah, I just looked this up. Definitely Hazel's mentioned in The Moon as a Harsh Mistress. Um, it's been a while since I read that. I think she's a background character if she's there at all, like uh, involved somehow in the revolution. So, so I guess that makes this future history, I suppose. Um, what else? So... Th- so thematically, what do we got going on here? Yes, this individualism. Uh, we have gender politics is a theme here, I think. I think there's enough to... I mean, Roger is a bit sexist, a bit patriarchal at times, and a bit dominating. And in a, in a family of less competent people, you could imagine he would be uh, a more... Um, uh, achieve his his kind of patriarchy but he doesn't really do that because he can't hazel and edith and mead are are too competent too intelligent so he's a little bit limited in how how he can do that so i think the gender politics is pretty good here um i mean where roger gets his ideas from maybe could have been on broken up a little bit more i just wish i just want more to know more about gender on the moon right and maybe i'm I'm kind of itching for the line marriages and that discussion but um but that's that um then we have uh math (laughs) math is a major theme like slide rules come up a lot and you know we're, we're told again and again you need to have the math to to be out in space and to to run a ship and survive we need to do that. So many pages devoted to things like flight plans and air traffic control and orbits and how to line up ships like for docking and, and weight and, and how you can keep a ship going. You know, how, how can you be detoured and still make it with, you know, how you have to like change your weight. And there's a whole scheme midway through the book where this kind of gets to the midpoint crisis of the book, which is. A ship that's a lot of ships are leaving at the same time from the moon because of just the nearness of Mars at that point. So every, you know, every couple of years, there's a, a moment when everyone tries to leave from Mars. And and so there's other ships around, but one of the ships, which is more like a, a tourist ship or a, a colonist ship, is has a plague, like a measles plague, and they don't have a doctor. And of course, Edith is a doctor. So she has to go over onto the ship, which, of course, Roger doesn't want her to do because she didn't have measles as a kid. And if she gets it, she could very likely die. 
and it's just dangerous, and who knows what could happen. You know, it's a, it's, it's just the, you know, risk of being a doctor. But she has to do that. She, she insists on doing it. They even Roger and Hazel even think about like cooking the books to make it impossible. But Hazel or Edith insists on doing it, and even Hazel sort of hints, you know, the right thing to do is let Edith decide. Um, she's very straight up, uh, a no nonsense lady, which is why she's so likable here. Um, but Edith goes, and she of course gets measles. But the other, this, con- this creates a larger crisis for the ship is that Castor and Pollux tried to, they still want to be merchants. They still want to make profit on this voyage. So they, um, they tried smuggling on like the parts for whiskey stills and things for, bu- for building on Mars. But uh, Roger says, yeah, I, I see through that. You're, you're kind of hiding it with this part and that part. But we, we can, everyone can tell you're trying to smuggle the goods to make stills sort of bootlegged alcohol or whatever. And I'm not going to let you do that. So they eventually resort to bicycles and they're going to, they buy bicycles that they're going to sell at a marked up rate when they get to Mars. But when they have to line up the ship, the Rolling Stone with this other ship full of sick people, they have to jettison a lot of this. And their plan is to basically send that stuff off to the Martian orbit and then pick it up later. Not just jettison, because once they jettison it, it will continue you know, Newton's law is going to continue on to Mars on its trajectory. And then they figure we can pick this up later, um, which is kind of clever. And Hazel kind of goes along with this as a long shot, but something uh, that's worth trying. Um, and and that's... Um, anyways, what I want to say, what I, I kind of lost my train of thought there for a second... The main focus here is on math. Again, math solves all these problems, like the slide rule, right? No calculators, no computers. Everything is done by hand. Repairs are done by hand. Calculations are done by hand. Flight plans are written by hand. Uh, It seems kind of old-fashioned that way. It really is. You do really get the sense of a family in a station wagon kind of trying to go from New York to California, you know, and seeing the sights along the way and, and running into different adventures, you know? Maybe uh, maybe Clark Griswold, if it was a comedy, would be what we'd think of. But this isn't that funny. I think Hazel is our comedic relief at times. But the comedy comes of just how straightforward and, and bold she is, right? And if you take her seriously as a character, I guess it's not that funny. It, it's maybe some of the humor comes in seeing a woman like this in a from a fifties mindset, you know, from what you'd expect as a reader in the nineteen fifties. Um, but still, I think certainly Heinlein does have humor in, in her character. She, does, she literally tells jokes at times. Um, but above all this, math, 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 math. So um, kind of we got math. We got the duty to our abilities, like with Edith and Castor and Pollux both have their different abilities and they both play a role in the plot. Um, Roger uh, kind of turning away from his engineering to be a writer of, of shit TV is and then he's able to kind of go back to his engineering roots by this adventure he has. Um, so that's these themes are all there. Um, it's just a little bit short of being like a really radical book, I think. And I think like the women cooking is maybe one big problem that needs to be addressed. Um, You know, Hazel cooks, Edith cooks, and Mead cooks. 
Castor and Pollux, Roger don't. And, and, and we actually get a lot about Castor and Pollux's education, but not Mead's. And, you know, Mead needed to be a, maybe a little more well-developed character. And I think we do hear more from her later on. Um, but that's, maybe it's not a big deal. Um, it's just, yeah, it's like he's so close, I think. And um, that's all. But, um, it, what, okay, plot-wise, all that really happens in the first half of the book is Castor and Pollux want to buy the ship. They bring it up with their father. Their father vetoes it. Eventually, within a chapter or two, they make a decision to go as a family, uh, get out of the screenwriting business. And in fact, that's like a physics problem, too, is like how many episodes do you have to write before you get out of the range to submit them in time so they can be acted out and, and, and pumped, you know, and, and produced. Um, not a big problem, but it's one, it, it is like a little plot point. Then they go to, uh, they go to, the, they go to Mars. And on the way to Mars, Castor and Pollux go to school. Mead doesn't, apparently. She's cooking, um, playing chess with Hazel. Um, and that's, um, but then we get the midpoint crisis, which is this epidemic. And it is really tense because we actually do feel Roger's frustration at not being in control at that moment, that he really wants uh, his family to follow his will. And his will is that they don't help this ship and that they go on to Mars and, and, and kind of keep to the plan. But the plan is hijacked by the reality and Edith's duty to, uh, to cure the sick, right? The Hippocratic, Hippocratic Oath fits, comes in here and derails their plans, but then math solves the problem, right? Or, or knowledge and skill and education solves, solve the problem. So a few problems in this book so far. I don't quite remember if they're fixed by the second half. So when I read the second half, I'll, I'll keep my eyes open for that. Um, I, think I think these limitations more or less stay throughout the book. Um, wait, is, is, is Mead even the one playing chess? No, it's Buster playing chess. Like the little kid is playing chess. I think it's implied he's psychic or something, right? Um, but yeah, um, the theme of the individual coming together, individuals coming together to accomplish something great is, is the heart of the story. And, and I think that's where, I think that's where I want to like, take Heinlein's hyper-individualist streak. Because if, it's, if you let that be picked up by the, the strict libertarian types, it, it's really toxic and not very useful. Because we want like, individuals to, we, we don't want that kind of collectivist attitude all the time, right? We don't want that to be the future. We want individuals to, to shine, right? But we are in a society. And I, you know, I think that's something... Heinlein sometimes gets and sometimes doesn't quite get. Um, I think he gets it more than he doesn't, though. Uh, like, even in Starship Troopers. I mean, that's the... It gets called a fascist novel all the time, but the, the heart of it is, like, you do have a duty to society, in a way. Um, so there's going to be a, a lot more to say when we get to Mars, because I think um, the contrasts between what the Rolling Stones are as a family and what the moon is... I remember this really strictly from the last time I read, is, is contrasted with the reality on Mars. So the future must be in the frontier. It's almost like a, a, a Turner-esque approach to, to the geography here. It's like the, Mars is more like Earth. 
it's more civilized. It's more classically, traditionally developed. Um, so if you want to break free of that, the moon is special because of its circumstances. People living underground and, and the gender natures of it and, and, and things like that. Um, it's, it's, again, all that's really developed in a later book. But the frontier, the asteroids, are going to be where the Rolling Stones ends up. Um, and, and I know that's where they end up. Um, so anyways, I think that's enough to set up this, this book. Again, not much in plot. No like tension, no revolutions. In that sense, it's very distinctive among the juveniles. It's the most different of them. Uh, maybe it's closest to rocket ship Galileo in that it's, it's about a group of people flying ships. But even here, you know, Heinlein doesn't need to add Nazis and asteroids or something to make it exciting. It, it, it's exciting on its own. It's fun to see this family and the family dynamics work out here. Um, really, really well done. Um, so interesting, interesting novel. Um, I think not, it doesn't have quite the punch of, of Between Planets for me, where you really got this feeling of just someone, like an individual lost in, in the chaos of, of, of a, of a you know, system-wide conflict. Um, and then you're just trying to make your way through that. He doesn't have to do that here. Um, instead, we have, like, just a family trying to make their way as, like, independent merchants and, and see, see the solar system. It's nice. It's nice. Uh, I just wish the gender politics were a little more radical because I know Heinlein can do it, and I know he wants to do it at times, but something is holding him back. So anyways, that will be it for now. Um, next episode, I'll finish up my thoughts on the Rolling Stones. Um, anyways, let me know what you think of this book. Um, I'll talk to you next time about it. Um, thanks for listening.